A reading from John 12. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever, so how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah spoke this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to the world but to for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. 
There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at that last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids are invited to Kids Church with Emily today. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. This is one of the teachings that Emily read from us from Jesus today. It's a, it's a long sort of passage that sort of we confront today. Um, as I heard it read, I regretted choosing such a long one, but such as me. Um, I'll try to keep it tight to the point. Um, but this is our first Sunday in Lent. This is the time when David continually comes up to me and says, what happened to all the happy songs? Um, and, and I remind him that the church sets aside a season of, of sort of 40 days, not counting the Sundays from Ash Wednesday, in which we walk towards the cross together. Now, what's amazing about this, and, and we, we stick with one gospel every New Year till Easter, but what's amazing about this is the gospels are structured that way in their story. Matthew, Mark, um, and uh, Luke have this way of sort of Jesus is exploring and revealing himself throughout the countryside of Judea, occasionally going near Jerusalem and such. And what happens is, is that Peter confesses that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. The transfiguration then follows where they go up on the mountain and Moses and the law and the prophets are there. And what happens from that point is that Jesus begins to set himself towards Jerusalem. He begins predict predicting his death to his disciples. He starts telling them about the trials that they will face. Similar to what we heard today, he'll tell them that, that um, uh, you need to pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus begins to instruct them in the kind of death that he's going to face in the second half of those Gospels. That's the way in which that works. Now, Chris made this cool banner. I keep looking over here just because I want to explain it. Is there are 40 days, the yellow, and 40 nights, obviously the black, and that's sort of what we walk. And 40 in, in the biblical imagination is this rich word. It's this time in which they were in the ark. It's this time in which they wandered in the wilderness. It's this time in which uh, Elijah was on the mountain. It, it comes up over and over again as sort of this time of testing, of purifying, of journeying with God. Like it's got all these things that come with it. Now you'll notice down here what Chris artfully did was Good Friday, uh, crucifixion, last day, and then Holy Saturday, um, darkness. The light has gone out of the world as it is on that day in which Jesus is in the tomb. So thank you for Chris for providing that, but I think that captures these 40 days. Now, I've, the church in its wisdom has decided, too, that the, the disciplines that make up the Sermon on the Mount are those in which we focus on during the 40 days, the, the season of sort of fasting, prayer, and almsgiving, giving to the poor. These sort of three things are sort of meant to renew in us our faith. 
I find it interesting in the modern world, as I talk to people about fasting, prayer, or giving to the poor, most people find some disconnect between their ideal and their life. I would like to pray more. I have not thought about withholding something from myself since the last Super Bowl, um, uh, or last New Year when, when I signed up for that new diet app that I quit January 15th. Um, I've not thought of withdrawing some from food or something like that. And then prayer, this idea that I'd like my attention to be directed to God, to more permanent things, towards a life that's lasting. I mean, today I think our attention is so divided as it is already, is that it's impossible to be attentive. I was sitting next to somebody at a one-year-old's birthday party yesterday. Note to self, don't sit next to me at one-year-old birthday parties. But I was talking about how I feel like that I was given a smartphone at the age of 26. I purchased one. I wasn't given to it. Um, And I didn't stand a chance. And yet we in this world are starting so early on that thing. And and Caitlin, my friend, I didn't want to say her name anyways, (laughs) she said to me, I wonder if people thought that about the TV. And I said, the difference is you turn the TV on and then you attended to it. I almost feel like my phone attends to me. Um, and how is it then we are going to have attention to bring meaning to life, to choose to attend to things that aren't just buzzing in our pocket, news 24-7, alerts for this, that, and the other, but to, but to attend to something beyond, to withdraw in fasting, to have a renewed season of prayer. And then, uh, traditionally, the fasting would lead to, to some excess money for you to give in almsgiving. If you were to abstain from meats and dairy, as the Orthodox Church does, or meat on Fridays, as the Catholic Church does, that you would find some extra money to direct towards almsgiving. The point wasn't to say, hey, find excess money in your life and give it away, but to create some through the disciplines in which you undertake. And that's a hard one, because I think it's so... Um, clear that in the Gospels, it's an attentiveness to the people you meet aside the long the road of life are the people in which you are to care for. Most often when I want to give, I'm like, which ministry is the most worthy today? Which cause or which place might I give it to? Which person can I support with this money? But so often I think we live these type of lives that we don't see the needs that are closest to us the hungry people who are near to us, people struggling in our day-to-day lives. And this, I think, is the greatest challenge Um, because it's, uh, I used to support a child through World Vision. He graduated, and I guess I didn't renew. Anyways, judge me for that. Um, uh, But as I supported him through World Vision, what I found is that, like, people would be like, oh, that's good that you do that. And I was like, it, like, is an auto-debit. I never even think about it. That is not my giving to the poor. Just my account was dinged $30 on the 27th of every month, and I never even thought about it. Occasionally, I'd get a card. What I realized was the demand on me was to find a way to take my daily life and to open to those concerns. So anyways, that's, that's Lent, this season which means spring, and it's this reason that we draw sort of 40 days, uh, not counting the Sundays, to sort of walk towards the cross with Jesus as well. Now, in John's gospel, what's happened so far is he's, he's sort of done these signs, which are referred to in this passage, um, among the people, these miracles and such. 
And all seven of them are completed in this first half of the gospel. I'll put that up, even though I'm not proud of my handwriting. Um, We had the prologue, and then 2 through 12, which we end today as the book of signs. Now, what's interesting, I got this wrong once, is that in the book of John, Palm Sunday is right before the scene we read in book 12. So 13 through the end of the gospel, over half the gospel, takes place in the final week of Jesus' life. This is his last public speaking to the crowds, too. The rest of this, he talks to the disciples, and then he talks in his trial, and he talks as he goes towards the cross. But this is his last sort of public plea. That's why we, um, uh, I believe Brian read the the passage from Deuteronomy today, because it has this matching of sort of Moses' final plea, too, is is that you are to choose life today. You are to keep these words near to you. As you enter into this next phase, Jesus is giving one last time for the crowds in the world to hear what he is teaching So next week, we'll start what they call the Book of Glory, which contains the Passion. Um, We'll get more into the inner words that he shares with his disciples, that closer circle, as sort of those last moments of his life. But John's Gospel, too, is divided in the same way that all the others are. There's a season in which he is sort of moving about, performing signs and miracles, and then another season in which he is moving directly towards the cross. Luke's Gospel captures it the best when he says... um, And Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. If you were to track the journeys that Jesus makes throughout the Galilean countryside, until then, they crisscross and they don't make sense that often. Um, But if you look at what happens in Luke's gospel when he says, and he sets his face to Jerusalem, it's a straight line. Here in John's gospel, we find him already there. The, The Palm Sunday had preceded this. His anointing for his death with Mary at Bethany Um, And now we get to this sort of section here that confirms both Jesus' prediction of his death, the first time he sort of speaks it openly to his disciples, although less directly than he does in the other Gospels, and then his um, final call, his final words to them. The passage starts with, and now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. This is Passover. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida and Galilee, with a request, Sir, that we'd like to talk to Jesus. Philip went to Andrew, Andrew, and Philip in turn told Jesus. The game of telephones started here. It would be funny because there were no telephones, as you think. It's, it works in so many ways, that joke. Um, I think it's clever. Anyways, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the Greeks in the previous passage, right before he enters into Jerusalem, um, one of the things the serious, the Pharisees complain about is that the whole world is turning towards this one Jesus. Now, up until this moment, most of the people interacting with Jesus in John's gospel have been Jews. Um, you've got a Samaritan woman, which is sort of um, an offshoot of Judaism, and they don't get along. But a lot of them are Jews. And so what happens here, the Pharisees, the serious, have this way in which when they say something, It becomes true in the way in which they didn't mean it. Earlier in the gospel, when Jesus goes away, they say maybe he's going out to the the people who aren't in Jerusalem and and Judea to go and teach them, which, of course, Jesus will do after he dies. Here, as they previously have said, the whole world is turning to him. These Greeks show up, non-Jews. Now, it's clear that there's something about them because they're going up to worship at the festival. There's a category, there's two 
categories that they could be. One is proselytes, people who have converted to Judaism, but it seems if that were the case, they would just, the author of John, John would call these people just Jews. There's another category of Greeks, and you see it sometimes in the Bible, called the God-fearers. These are people who were impressed with Jewish um, piety, morality, the demands in which they lived their life. And this was a standout at the time. Becomes a standout for the early Christians for, for a long period of time, too. That, that, that the quality of their life spoke to them as such. And the, the second thing that impressed these type of Greeks was often their monotheism. They find interesting in the Jews that draws them to that community, not close enough to go through becoming a Jew, but they're these people who fear the God of Israel despite not wanting to become Jews. And so they're people who see their, their morality and both their monotheism as worth following. And so now the whole world has come to this point. Why Philip and Andrew? Um, there's lots of guesses, but it, one of, they're kind of Greek names. And so the argument being like that these Greeks, they come to see Jesus and they're like, which disciple has the Greek name? We'll ask them. We'll ask them to go get us. And then Philip goes to Andrew. When Jesus hears this request, he responds interestingly because he doesn't respond directly to the Greeks. What he sees now is that the world has opened up that the world is seeking the truth in his gospel. He says to him, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the time in which he will go to the cross. Now in John's gospel, more distinctly than elsewhere, is Jesus' cross is the instrument of his glorification. Jesus on the cross is where the angels and uh, uh, angels descend and ascend is what he said earlier in the gospel is that place where heaven meets earth is that this object of the world's greatest shame at the time is being turned into the object of God's glory now the cross in all of the New Testament or um, is shorthand for the resurrected one that's a, a statement from Ernest Kaysman is to say that he is the crucified one is shorthand for saying that he is the resurrected one. Because if you were to say that he is the crucified one, you imply the resurrection. Otherwise, he would have been forgotten about. So whenever we talk about the cross, and you'll find Paul talks about the cross perhaps more than the resurrection because he knows that in the story of the cross, contained with that image, is that glorification that comes on the other side of it. The distinction of the cross is transformation by the resurrection makes it so that they call him the crucified one. They bring that about. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life in the world will lose it, and anyone who hates in their life will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. My father will, my father will honor the one who serves me. I spent most of the week thinking about this passage. It's one of my favorite passages to largely just wait in. I mean, I've thought about it every time it comes along. I think about it often. Is What does it mean to say that unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed? Because contained within it, it seems like is much truth counter-truth. It's, it's, it's truth that we don't often realize. For instance, to say um, anyone who loves their life in the world will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life, 
If you want to learn a foreign language, the number of deaths involved in becoming competent in it, the number of times that seed has to fall to the ground so that you can stumble towards being able to articulate the foreign language, reaps the fruit. If you want to master a musical instrument, Surely you will have to die many times to the other requests on your time because you will never get there. If you want to become proficient in anything. Now, Jesus picks the seed one because it's also just true in which we see in nature. You see a cornfield and you realize it's because of the nature in which all these seeds were planted. And the harvest is reaped through that. Or better yet, apple trees. Apple trees from one seed comes a tree in which there are a whole lot of potential apples, or apple trees. Um, the, the harvest of the apple trees from the apple tree, singular, plural, not my strong suit, um, is, is much greater than you find in just the single thing. Now, what Jesus articulates here, he's saying, is true of the with God life. The with God life, the eternal kind of life, the life that in John's gospel doesn't start in that future day when the trumpet sounds and all are resurrected, but starts as you move into believing into God today, is true of what's true of just about everything else you want to gain competency in, become better at. You have to die to yourself in order for there to be a harvest. You have to be willing to lose this life so that the next can have more. Maybe it's just me, but it's, I keep coming back to that because there's so much truth in that. And then what does that look like for the Christian? For instance, for the, for the person who wants to become extremely competent in the organ— it looks like practicing the organ, having a less interesting social life. One, because you chose the organ, but two, because you have to practice more. You got that one. I couldn't let it slide. Um, could have picked a nerdier instrument. But, um, but that's sort of the way in which we, um, what does that mean for the Christian life? To be able to say, what does it mean that we are losing and dying to? Now, in this passage of John's gospel, what happens next is, is there are people who want to continue in darkness. There are people who want to continue in the world's sort of path. And then there are people who, who are confounded by human glory. These things, wanting to remain in darkness, wanting to remain respectable in the world or follow the world's path. And I find it interesting to think about the default to stay on the default path, you have to die to. To turn aside from the world's glory, to not see what man says about you, what humanity says about you, as more important than what God says about you, will free you into this harvest that Jesus is talking about. I think most notably, if, if I think about this way of living, I think about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and the Sermon on the Mount has this weird ethical demand to it that seems, even today, 2,000 years later, countercultural if you really think about it. I mean, if you go over it fast, 
um, you're like, oh yeah, those are things I've heard before, but it's much richer than that. What it calls, though, is oftentimes when we think about the ethical of the Sermon on the Mount, we forget about this one in which is spoken about several times in it, that the Father sees what you do in secret. My Father in heaven will remember you. These trees of the field, but God clothes them in something more majest, more um, the flowers of the field, consider them because they are clothed more majestic by the Father in heaven. Like, there's this way in which there's another reality behind this reality that we're behind this reality that we're always being drawn into through the ethics of the sermon. So, too, it's not just called to live this strenuous ethical life, but the type of dying we're called into is this one in which we live in relationship with another being, another plane, another reality. We find ourselves caught into that thing. The Sermon on the Mount continually points that, that out. John's been pointing it out in his gospel and walking in the light and being in the world in a different way. And so often I think that it's um, I think it becomes more plain to us what this looks like. I heard a pastor once say that, that he um, he was talking about those who are fierce with reality. And I didn't go like, oh, what's that mean? <laughs> I mean, it's a good question, but you instantly start to think of who are the people that you see as fierce with reality in your life? People capable of being in darkness longer than other people. People being hearing other stories of pain and hurt. There are people who um, live relationally in robustness that often seems at odds with the world. We find ourselves drawn to those places. And oftentimes, it's been one of the greatest struggles in my life is when I go to like a conference, Christian conference or not, and you see the person on the stage and you get close to them, and it's like the person next to the person on stage that's fierce with reality. Um, it's almost like to get to the top, you had to, you had to sell out somewhere along the way. And I don't mean that in that hipster sort of sense of the word. It's just sort of like today, if you want to become somewhat manageable to be at the top, you have to give something to the world and it takes part of your soul in the meantime. But you meet these people along the way of life. Um, this, this line I think of often, I've shared it before, but to be a witness of God does not consist in engaging in propaganda nor in stirring the people up, but in being a living mystery. It means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. I write this down often when I can, because memory is better if you write with like a pencil or something like that. And when I run across it in some other book, I write it down. But what does it mean to be a witness to God in this way? We talked a little bit about Asbury last week, the revival, but one of the things as I read about it a little bit more this week was how analog it was, how low in technology it was, how they encouraged people not to stream and not to record and this, that, and the other. That didn't work. Um, but like one of the things I think our modern world aches for is just things to be real, not in, in that you know, marketable sense, but people just praying, people just resting in that, people engaged in that stuff. 
We see plenty of propaganda in our world. You must be stirred up. You must buy this flag. You must put this on your profile. You must share this information. You must be stirred up. But to have this dying, to be in this living mystery that means to live one's life in such a way that it would not make sense if God did not exist. That revival, again, I'm not a revivalist, and it just happened to be in the media a lot this week, but if you think about it, it really doesn't make any sense if God does not exist. Go back to college. Get an A. Get a job. Go into debt. Find out. No. Um, uh, it doesn't make sense in that way. You have to leave the world path. You have to leave the darkness path. You have to go to some other place. This um, line from David Foster Wallace, uh, which I realize now is way too small to read, but I'll read it. Um, he's writing about irony in the world and how everything sort of is becoming this critical distance to it and that to actually care about something is to reveal yourself as... Um, sensitive like there's so much distancing in this in the world so he's talking about how novels have continued sort of to push the boundary of sort of satire to push the boundary of vulgarness to push the boundaries of this because that was the edge but he says perhaps the next real literary rebels in this country might well emerge as some kind of weird bunch of anti-rebels born ooglers who dare somehow to back away from ironic watching who have the childish gall to actually endorse and instantiate single entendre principles, who treat, of plain old, uh, who treat of plain old untrendy human troubles and emotions in the human life with reverence and conviction, who eschew self-made consciousness and hip fatigue, real rebels as far as I can see risk disapproval. Pause there for a second to say that what I find amazing about this book or this quote, is that to say, what he's trying to say is, the people who will look the most out of place in this coming age, when he wrote this, will be the people who are basic. They see real human struggles and don't look for something more interesting behind that. I don't know if anybody remembers when American Beauty and all these movies came out about how the suburbs were terrible. Um, they might have been terrible, but not for the reasons those movies capture. But the uh, they had to have like a big exotic reasons for it. What Wallace is saying is they'll meet them in the ordinariness of it. They won't need something greater than that. The old postmodern insurgents risked the gasp and the squall, shock, disgust, outrage, censorship, accusations of socialism, anarchism, nihilism. Today's risks are different. The new rebels might be, willing, might be artists willing to risk the yawn. The rolled eyes, the cool smile, the nubbed ridge, the parody of gifted ironists, the oh how banal. Like the, the, the new artists will risk, of course you'd think that. Of course you're shocked by that. And I, you see this playing out in the world in so many ways. If you are shocked at something that happens in our culture, somebody will be like, of course. Of course, you're that way. But he's saying those people might be willing to risk that, to risk accusations of sentimentality, melodrama, overcredulity of softness, of willing to be suckered by a world of lurkers and starers who fear gaze and ridicule and imprisonment without law. Who knows? Which is his critical distancing at the... It's funny at the end because he's kind of like, 
maybe they'll be that way. This is me being honest, but who knows? Even in his own. And I, I thought this was up there. Um, there's, is, there's a phrase that I used to describe our church in this too, that it says, outdated before they even get started. They'd be willing to be risked being outdated before they even get started. What does it mean to become these people who can find life in that way by just taking life serious as it is? By being moral in a way that just sees the days as they come and the truth of what they are. I think so often the Christian life is made into this something complex, hard, radical, this sort of thing, and it's like, what if you were just the person at your workplace who people knew they could come to if they had a problem? What if you were just the friend who, when people would came to you, they know they wouldn't see judgment, but they would see somebody of sincerity and care? And if this isn't connecting, which it's because I haven't done a good enough job, is that this is what I think it means to die in this world. To die to the self. To hate this life. Because to do this, to do that, means to stand out in ways you may not want to stand out. You don't get there without sacrifice. As I describe that type of person, I think I'd like to be that type of person. So I took the shortcut and professionally became one. People have to think of me that way without even having to do the work. Um, that was a joke. You still have to do the work, particularly today, even if you're a pastor, but that's a different thing. Um, but you have to do the work. You have to see that the seed has to fall to the ground and die. That enticement with darkness. That willing, can't I just take the path of least resistance and end up there? And I still be respected in all the worldly ways that I want and find that truth. We all need to die to that. And the promise we receive on the other side of that is now whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servant will also be. Where we go in those places, he is also there. I'm just going to give up on the rest of the text. Like I said, I spent most of the week thinking about that. There are great things throughout the rest of this. Jesus' final sermon there um, about uh, life doubling down on this, that if you see me, you see God. If you hear me, you are hearing God. Um, that he's, he's labeling that in the world as his path. Um, he's trying to call the people one last time to that before he goes. I know this command leads to eternal life, he says there. Whoever believes in me is the one believes in the one who sent me, that being God. Um, the quote on the back of the bulletin from Rudolf Boltman, which I normally will read, I'm not going to read it today, talks about how our decisions make up our lives, which I think is connected to the point that I spent all the sermon on anyways. Um, John, the Father, only speaks once in John's Gospel. I should say that, too. That is in that I am glorifying you through this path in which you are going to go on. Um, when Jesus is saying, this is similar to the Gethsemane scene in the other Gospels where Jesus is in agony. Should I cry out at this moment, Father, glorify your name? I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And you've got to love people's response to, like, maybe it's an angel, maybe it's thunder. 
which is exactly the way we would underwrite all the miraculous in our own lives. Um, And going to that, um, yeah. For he says to us, you're only going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the darkness doesn't know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so you may become children of the light. Let us pray. God, you have gifted us this miraculous call in John's gospel. It's a truism that as seeds fall and die on the ground, life comes from that. We know this because if we want to aim at something in our lives, it requires many dyings. Become competent in a language to learn a skill or instrument. But God, you have also crafted our Christian walk in that way as well. What does it mean to die to walking in darkness? To have that comfort that comes from those little darknesses that we can craft in our own ways? What does it mean to die to those so that light might reign? What does it mean to say to the default patterns in which the world continually prods us that we will walk a different path? We will trod a different direction. We will be led by you into that light. And finally, what does it mean to be able to risk disapproval of those around us to be this kind of person? To die in that way as well. God, send your spirit amongst us to make us alive to those realities. To kindle in our hearts a fire to be that way. To become witnesses to who you are. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.